I want to invite you to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 23. Um, you know, just in the economy of chapters, we're, we're just about halfway through. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the last part will go a little faster than, than the first um, by, by design, but um, we're in chapter 23, and God has continued to encourage and strengthen us during this, this particular season um, in this section of case law. And I would invite you to stand as we read verses 23, uh, sorry, chapter 23, verses 10 through 19. Exodus 23, verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You should do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days shall you do work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman, and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the, of the firstfruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until morning. The beast, or sorry, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Lord, as we come to this passage today, we come. Um, maybe with a lot of questions as to how does this relate to us? Why would we even have a section that talks about boiling a young goat in its mother's milk? It just seems so distant from where we live. And Lord, we just ask that as we are gathered today, that you would settle in on us through this text and you would reveal to us, Lord, uh, the beauty of who you are. Lord, what you want to continue to teach us and to shape us with from your word so that we can become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ, and we can see him in, in greater beauty and glory. And so, Lord, what we, what we are not, would you make us? What we have not, would you give us? And Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? And allow me as your messenger, as your mouthpiece, Lord, to, to proclaim your truth to your people so that our hearts can be stirred to become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this now in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Our lives have rhythms. Uh, often they're based on where you live, 
and often they're based on your various interests. There are seasonal rhythms, rain, snow, sunshine, foliage, tornadoes, hurricanes, based on where you live. Now, I was interacting with a lot of guys this week from Chicago, and they were just lamenting all the snow that they had while I was looking out the window and enjoying our 60-something degree weather. And maybe in California, we don't experience the season quite as much, but there is a rhythm to the seasons. There's a rhythm that takes place. There's, there's, There's a sporting rhythm for those of you that are interested in sports. There's baseball season. There's football season, and baseball season is different because it begins in the spring. Football season happens if you're in the Midwest when things start to get colder and you can smell the leaves on the ground and there's a Christmas in the air. And then, of course, there's hunting season. Now, I know here in California it's like, what, hunting? But you go to most parts of the United States, hunting season starts in you know, October, November. There's bow season, there's rifle season. It depends on what you're shooting at and looking for, there's different seasons there. Then there's calendar rhythms. Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day, Easter, Cinco de Mayo, July 4th, Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. And some of you have decorations for them all. Then there's musical or dancing rhythm. When it comes to music, you either got rhythm or you don't. And that brings us to my question, do you have rhythm? What would your family say? What would your spouse say if you're married? No, he, he doesn't have any rhythm. We've tried before, but there's, there's no rhythm happening there at all. What would your friends say? But friends, what if I told you that you do actually have rhythm, that being a part of God's family means that he has granted you a rhythm for life that you desperately need? And why do you need it? Because without it, you and I are likely to drift away from God. Now, we we, we resonate with the following psalms. Just listen as I read them. Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I uh, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Or Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants, For flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Or Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Or Psalm 16, verses 8 and 9, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. See, friends, these are are passages that we resonate with because we aspire to this. I mean, in our best moments, this is what we want to do. This is how we want to live. And so we say, yes, amen, this is what we want to be. 
But the reality is that living in a sin-cursed world where there are so many responsibilities on our shoulders and issues that we have to face and distractions that chase after us every day, it's easy to set our devotion for God aside and settle into living a comfortable and nominal kind of Christian life. Where we come to church or we watch it online, but slowly drift away only to be lulled to sleep by the whispers of apostasy. Whispers that we don't even realize are being played over and over and over in our spiritual ears and in our hearts. And what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 3, verse 12 of that book needs to be preached into our souls. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, he says, brothers. He's speaking to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are professing to be followers of Christ. There can be a drifting away from what you know to be true, from this delight and joy and hunger for God. And this happens, friends, when we allow our devotion to God to become just another link in the chain of our life and not the priority of our life. And what God is saying to this newly formed nation of Israel is this, that these are the rules that are going to govern you as a nation, rules for slaves, rules for the sanctity of life, rules for possessions, for social justice, and for courtroom justice. And here at the end of the rules, he says, I want you to know that you are in danger. You're in danger of drifting. You're in danger of getting comfortable. You're in danger of simply being religious and having a form of godliness when in reality, it's emptiness. Why? Because you've drifted from me. You've forgotten me. And you've forgotten what it is that I have done for you. You've forgotten what I am doing for you. You've forgotten what I will do for you. Because I am Yahweh, your God. And so in order to help Israel maintain her devotion to the Lord, so as to keep him as the right priority, he now establishes for them a rhythm for life to teach them and to remind them how blessed they are and how faithful he is. How blessed they are not only to be delivered, but to have him as their God, but also how faithful he is as their God to care for them. He has covenanted with them. And although these rhythms are unique to Israel, because they are, And we as a church are not bound by them. We will see that we are no less needy. In fact, the fact that we are no less needy means that God continues now, even in our context, being the church, to give us divine rhythms that are for our good. Let's call them rhythms for gospel living. 
And so what I want for us to do today is to allow these rhythms that God gives Israel to guide us and to give us an insight into the character of God, as well as to reveal the seed of divine rhythms that we as a church need to embrace and to make sure are present in our lives. And we need these rhythms to make sure that we are maintaining our devotion to him that we're not drifting, that we're not kind of wandering away, and to keep him in the preeminent place of our lives where he rules and he reigns over everything. And so we're first going to look at two Sabbath rhythms. Then we're going to look at three festival rhythms. Then we're going to, uh, after that, consider four essential rhythm principles that are there throughout this text. And finally, we're going to land the plane and consider the gospel rhythms that God has called his church to embrace. So God is calling Israel to maintain these godly rhythms in their lives. Let's first of all then look at these Sabbath rhythms. Again, we'll find those in verses 10 through 12. You'll notice there two Sabbath rhythms that that God is giving his people to maintain as part of their life cycle. First of all, there's a yearly rhythm or a yearly Sabbath. Actually, it's every six or seven years, right? That's what it says. For six years, you shall sow your land and gather its yield, but the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie in fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. So here's this yearly Sabbath, every seven years, that seventh year, is to be a year of rest for the land. And so we'd be right then to come to some conclusions and understand that God knows something about agriculture. And you can see the benefits of, of how leaving a field to rest for a year is actually beneficial for that field to gain nutrients and to be ready then for some new crops to come in. However, although that may be agriculturally true, and that might be a secondary purpose, the theological reason that we have for this particular rhythm has nothing to do with the land so much as it has to do with taking care of the poor. Notice the word that in verse 11. It says, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. And that word is is a strong word. It's an emphasis word. It's telling us that God's purpose here is not just to let the land kind of rest, but it's actually to provide for the poor. This is part of God's, I want to say, welfare system in the land of Israel. Those who have cared for those who didn't have by means such as these. So it wasn't primarily about the land resting, but about the poor surviving. And so there was this rhythm every six years, the seventh year, you let that field rest. Now understand this. This wasn't everyone doing this all at the same time, because if that were true, then you have a whole year with no crops and a lot of people going hungry. So this is a staggered rhythm. So as a farmer, you might have, let's say, seven fields, just to make it easy as far as the math is concerned. That means every year you would have one field that you're 
setting aside, you're letting it rest. And by virtue of the fact that you're letting it rest, those who are poor are able to come and they're able to glean from what is left in that field. Although you may have six other fields that are growing and you're able to harvest. And if everyone's doing that, then you have a bunch of fields all over the place that are prepared there to to help satisfy the needs of the poor. It's a wonderful Sabbath principle, isn't it? Now notice, though, at the end of the section, it says the regulation also stipulates that this should happen to your vineyard and to your olive orchard. Those were considered to be the cream crops. So this would be true. In other words, even the poor can come in on that seventh year and they can eat of the grapes. They can eat of the olives that are part of your land the best of your land. So that's the yearly Sabbath. Then we have the the weekly Sabbath. We're far more familiar with this. Here we have this weekly Sabbath. For six days you'll work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Once again, notice the that in this text. That your ox and your donkey may have rest, and that the son of your servant woman, an alien, may be refreshed. This is, this is kind of an exhaustive statement. It's giving you some sample things. Say, look, the point of this is that everyone gets to rest. This was a command for a weekly day of rest and refreshment for you, for your animals, for your servants, and so on. Now, friends, this should be a reminder of us or to us of the fourth commandment, right? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. All that's being said here in this case law is is rooted in the Ten Commandments, in a particular commandment, and this is rooted in that fourth commandment. And what we need to remember here is that the Sabbath wasn't given by God to be a burden to his people. We certainly get that picture when we come to the gospel. It's almost like the Sabbath is like, oh, no, it's the Sabbath. We can't do this. We can't do that. We can't go here. We, you know, it's that kind of stuff. And, 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 we, and people have it all kind of messed up. That's not what was going on. God has given the Sabbath to be a day of rest. I remember when I was in university, there would be seasons of time uh, when maybe, maybe the school, there was, there, was, there was kind of sickness going through the campus. Or maybe the, the, the leadership just sensed a, a kind of a, a laboring weariness among the students. And they would issue a day of rest. So maybe on Wednesday it would say, tomorrow is a day of rest. And what it meant was that all the assignments, all the tests, all the quizzes were bumped for a day or for the next class. And the point was that no student should have uh, have, have any responsibilities for that Thursday. They were to rest. But of course, we as students, guess what we did? We didn't rest like we were supposed to rest. The point of this is to rest. And when you remove those responsibilities, you can rest. This is the point. The point of the Sabbath is rest. It's a gift of God for his people that they would Rest. Remember, they were once slaves in Israel or in Egypt, and in that slave capacity, they didn't have the freedom of rest. They were always under taskmasters. And God is saying, no, that's not creation's pattern. I've set that for you in creation. On the seventh day, even God rested. Now, we know God didn't need to rest. 
He rested to lay out a pattern for us to follow. And friends, this is all why Jesus makes the statement in Mark chapter 2 and verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given for man to help man, to bless man, to encourage man so that he could rest. It wasn't there to be this burden. It was there to be a blessing. So it's clear from these two Sabbath rules, these two Sabbath rhythms, that God cares deeply about his people as well as the vulnerable in particular. Now, having looked at these two Sabbath rhythms, we now turn our attention to the three festival rhythms, the three festival rhythms. This is the second point. We find in verse 14, three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. Now remember, this is Exodus, so this is the, this is the first instruction about feasts. As you read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there's going to be more feasts, more elaboration on some of these things. So this is the beginning. This is the first that they're, they're receiving, right? And so he's saying there's going to be three feasts that you're going to be keeping uh, for me. And, and they are given to us in the chronological order based on the flow of the yearly agricultural cycle. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread took place in late March and early April. The Feast of Harvest took place in early summer. The Feast of Ingathering took place in September. So let's look at each of these one at a time. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now again, this, this is a feast that, that God had already commanded Israel to observe. If you go back to Exodus chapter 12, you find that commandment. You find those instructions as God was, was preparing the people to leave Egypt. And of course, this happened, the Feast of Unleavened Bread happened right after Passover. And often the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover uh, kind of morphed into one celebration. But here, it's specifically it is a separate thing. And the point here of this festival was to remind the people of their exodus. So while they were waiting to be delivered, God established this Feast of Unleavened Bread. But now as they celebrate this Feast of Unleavened Bread, they are looking back and reminded of God's deliverance, of his power, of his, um, uh, of his work in them to prepare them for this time of deliverance and ultimately their deliverance. Now notice it says, none shall appear before me empty-handed. This is part of the requirement. This is part of the expectation that when you came to this feast, you came offering gifts to God. Now it would be harvest type of gifts, okay? Now what happened when Israel came out of Egypt? What was in their hand? I would encourage you to turn back to Exodus chapter 3 and verses 19 and 20 to remind yourselves of what it is that happened with, uh, with Israel. Now, this is, this is something that's said in chapter 3 that God was going to do, and ultimately he does do. Verse 19 of Exodus chapter 3. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor 
and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, for clothing, you shall put them uh, on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So they don't plunder the Egyptians in the way that we think, what the way God orchestrated is the Egyptians were saying, leave, get out of here, take what you want, please take what you want, gold, silver, clothing, go ahead, take it. That's how it played out. So here they are going now into the wilderness, going through the Red Sea in the wilderness now. They have all this stuff, right? And God is saying, all this stuff is mine. I gave it to you, but it's mine. Now, jump ahead to chapter 25 of Exodus. We haven't gotten there, obviously, but this is now some of the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. And I want you to notice what it says in verses 1 through 4. It said, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, uh, you shall receive contribution from me. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, and so on and so forth. Now, do you get what God is saying here? How did Israel have gold and silver and bronze and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and so on? They were slaves. They got it because the Egyptians gave it to them as they were leaving. They didn't find it in the wilderness. They didn't stumble upon this, this cave that had all this stuff in it, right? No, they, had been, they plundered the Egyptians. God had provided for them. But now as the tabernacle is being established, God is saying, you're going to have an opportunity to contribute. And you contribute out of the things that I have given you. And notice what he says here. He's not mandating how much. Right? What does he say? Speak to the people who is that they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. So the implication here is the people look at all that they have, and they're like, God is wanting some gifts for the tabernacle. You know what? I, I'm moved to do that. I, I want to be a part of, of establishing this place of worship for my God. Look at what he's done. He's saying, all of it is mine. So don't come to the festival empty-handed. God's blessing, God's provision is to be rejoiced and to be celebrated. Now, isn't it like God to give us everything we need to worship Him? He's not asking us to worship Him out of things that we don't have. He's asking us to worship Him out of what we do have. So remember God's deliverance, how He redeemed you, and how He provided for you along the way. That's the first Feast of Unleavened Bread. Secondly, there's the Feast of Harvest. We find that in verse 16. The Feast of Harvest goes by a couple of other names you may have heard of. The Feast of Weeks and then Pentecost. And the reason it's called Pentecost is because it's 50 days after Passover. And the Feast of Harvest took place in June and involved bringing the first fruits of the grain, especially the wheat and the barley. Now, when Israel was in Egypt, they were in a culture that saw the Nile as the 
and the, and the gods of the Nile, I should say, as the source of prosperity. The Nile was at the heart of the Egyptian culture. And they will be going into another land, the land of Canaan. And in that culture, uh, the, the, the fruitful prosperity in their thinking came as a result of stirring up the fertility gods. But God is saying, I am the source of your fruitfulness. So you're not to be like the Egyptians who see their prosperity as coming from the Nile. You're not to be like the Canaanites who see their prosperity as coming from their fertility gods. But you are to be a distinct people who see that your God is the one who gives you everything you need. So you're not to trust in the gods of Egypt and you're not to trust in the gods of the Canaanites but you're only to trust in the one true God, your God, Yahweh. And then in here, you notice it says, you shall keep the, the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. It's interesting. This is the first time the word first fruits is used in Scripture. And it's a word that Paul brings us back to in Romans chapter 8 to describe what is to come. And from an agricultural perspective, the first fruits are an example of how good or how bad the crop is going to be. It's not the ultimate harvest, it's the first fruits. You say, aha, it's starting to come in now. This is what it looks like. It's going to be a great harvest. It's a foretaste of what is to come. The crop is not uh, fully formed here, but it's just starting, but we look forward to the final reaping of that harvest. And with the inspection of the first fruits, you can see what is going to happen. So Paul, in Romans 8, you might want to turn there. In Romans, Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, he's helping us to think about living our lives with great hope, even though we may be suffering and struggling and being persecuted. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, here's what he says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, right? This is what's happening now. This is what's yet to come. You get that? We're in suffering. There's the glory to come. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who uh, subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been growing together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, this is where he's going, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, there's that word, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So he's saying we, we groan for that, that harvest. We groan for that promise. Verse 24, for in this we hope we are saved. Uh, we hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So there's this there's this anchor that we as God's children have. We have the first fruits, the joy of our salvation, the blessing and the benefits that come with that initial experience of life. But get this, 
God is not done with us yet. There is so much more that we have yet to experience and to enjoy and to celebrate and to to be aware of. That's all part of our salvation experience. How does the Apostle Paul in in Philippians 1.6 say? He says it a little differently. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in, in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He began something, but he's not done but he will bring it to completion. See, the beginning is the first fruits here. And this is the wonderful picture that we have. There is still more that he wants to accomplish. He is not done with you. So, hope in God. Now, in the same stream of thought, the Apostle Paul also emphasizes that Jesus in his resurrection is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, he's saying that Christ's resurrection is the tangible, concrete evidence of the full harvest to come, the resurrection of all believers. See, we, we have yet stuff to look forward to, to experience that it's all part of this beautiful thing that we call our salvation. That's the feast of harvest. Then there's the feast of ingathering. You shall keep the feast of ingathering, it says, at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. So we had, we had a feast taking place in March, April. A feast is taking place around June. And then we have a feast that takes place somewhere in September. This is an agricultural cult, uh, calendar, not a, necessarily a, a yearly calendar. And there's some kind of fluidity because of the agriculture. You you say, okay, this is the time when I'm supposed to harvest. So there's a certain season in there, but the point of this harvest is this is the the end of the harvest. This is the the final joy when you gather in everything that you've put in the ground. In particular here, not so much the wheat and the barley, that would have taken place earlier, but this would have been the grapes and the olives. These would have been the things that would be the, the cream of the crop, so to speak. And this was an opportunity to remind Israel that all gifts come from God. In other words... It was a call for Israel to thank God for its daily bread. That God is a God who provides for them. He gives sustaining providence. And and, and so their abundance is a reflection of God's faithfulness to them. So all of these feasts were times to celebrate, to reflect, to remember that God delivers, that God provides, and that God sustains. And it reminded them of God's covenant love for his people. So we have these festival rhythms. We have these Sabbath rhythms. And then we have these rhythm principles. Verse 13 is the first one. And then verses 17 through 19, we have three more principles that are laid out for us. But these these principles are given now to help us understand a framework as to how to approach them. The attitudes that God is calling for us to have as we we actually experience these, these rhythms. Because God is not so much concerned about simply going through the motions. He wants a heart that is behind what's happening in these rhythms. You get that? So now we have these principles. And I've just kind of pulled them out for us to hopefully 
help them sing a little bit better for us. First of all, in verse 13, it says, pay attention to all that I've said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Again, now this is the first commandment coming out, isn't it? You shall have no other gods before me. Why would God, why would God even think to say when you're celebrating the Sabbaths, don't think about other gods. Don't even bring them up. I mean, just focus in on me. Well, he's saying that because he knows what people are like. And Egypt is, sorry, sorry, Israel is still doing what they can to get rid of Egypt that they brought into the wilderness. Because they brought Egypt and many aspects, way of thinking, habits of behavior, even the, the gods that were around them and the culture that they grew up with, they're just naturally bringing them into this new relationship with this God that they have now recently been introduced to and is now establishing this nation. And God is slowly whittling away at Egypt. And so there's habits of Egypt that they can bring into this new relationship with God. Again, it's hard to imagine that God would say this, but I, I just thought about this, and I thought it from, from my perspective. But if you, were, if you were to flash forward to 2021 and listen to sermons taking place from many pulpits across this country, you would find a lot of pastors and preachers using the Word of God. They may be present, they might quote from it, but not preaching the Word of God. Instead, they might be proclaiming the wisdom of man you know, let me give you some pointers to think about. Uh, maybe some pop psychology. And you might quote a scripture here and there. And you might even also hear the, the writings of, of leaders from other religions coming out from a pulpit that is under, I want to say, a Christian umbrella. And friends, this is the way of the world, isn't it? It wants to creep into what we're doing. And God is saying, no, 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 no. God will have none of that. He will not share his glory with anyone else. So while you're going through these Sabbath rhythms, I am to be central. I am to be the, the one that, that, that you focus on. That's why we talk about being Christ-centered, being God-centered, being gospel-centered. Why? Because it's so easy for us to drift. So God is calling for exclusivity. Secondly, in verse 17, three times in the year shall your males appear before the Lord God. Now we know from Deuteronomy and later also, um, I think in Leviticus, that not just males were at these festivals. Wives were there, women were there, children, infants. Uh, they all came to these great festivals. But there's an emphasis here that God is making in this statement. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before me. As far as God is concerned, heads of families, the men here, have a special responsibility in the propagation of spiritual life in Israel. In other words, the burden of responsibility for the spiritual welfare of the household is put on the men, it's put on the males. And he's saying, this is my design. So men, you have to step up. You need to see your responsibility before me and your family to take on the spiritual leadership in your home. This is not God saying, I don't care for women. This is God saying, 
ladies, I'm protecting you by making sure that your men step up to the plate and take responsibility to care for you and the rest of the family. So to be a spiritual leader doesn't necessarily mean that you're smarter than your spouse or have more Bible knowledge than her. It means that you are saying to her and to your family, this is the direction that we're going. We are going to serve the Lord. We're going to make him a priority in our home. Saying it's the men. It's the men who who bear that responsibility on their shoulders. So there's a responsibility before God. There's an exclusivity for God. Third, there's a quality necessary for God. This is verses 18 and 19. You shall not offer blood, the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until morning. The best of the first fruits of the ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. So we have these really two instructions that are I'm going to say opposite sides of the same coin. Don't offer corrupted blood sacrifices. In other words, it was leavened, or you left it out overnight and it turned rancid. And the other side of the coin is, do give the best of your first fruits. So don't, don't come with corrupted stuff. Bring your best stuff. In other words... God is concerned about the quality of the offerings that you are bringing. This speaks to both an attitude of carefulness as well as excellence as Israel comes before the Lord. And then finally here in verse 20, uh, uh, the last verse there, verse 19, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now this seems really random, doesn't it? This is actually listed three times in the scriptures. And you're like, what in the world is going on? You know, I may have been tracking a little bit as we were going through here, but it just seems like this came out of nowhere. But friends, it's not out of place. This is actually very helpful for Israel to hear. It's communicating something extremely important. You see, the practice of boiling a young goat in its mother's milk was something that took place in Canaanite religion. It was considered to be a kind of magic spell to bring about fertility and strength to one's flocks. And what God is saying to the children of Israel is this, don't act like the Canaanites in their worship. Don't get your ideas of how to worship from them or any other pagan people uh, or cultures. No, you get your instructions for worship from me. He's saying, don't look at how the Canaanites are worshiping their gods and say, man, that's really cool. This would really do well in the context of worship in the house of God. Let's do that. See what happens. Oh, you don't want to see what happens. Because you will not be happy. Because you're borrowing from the world and bringing that into the context of worship that God has not regulated. You may have heard about what's called the regulative principle in worship. It simply means this, that we are called to worship in ways that God has regulated for us to worship. We don't just come up with our own kind of worship styles and things. We come up with worship that is 
revealed for us and modeled for us in the pages of God's Word. So we always must be wise. We always must be careful and to allow God to dictate what our worship should look like. So these principles, exclusivity, responsibility, quality, regulation, all help then Israel think through how they are to approach, how they are to interact with these various rhythms, the Sabbath rhythms and the ritual rhythms. They say, okay, Pastor Rob, this is all wonderful and good. Thank you for telling me a little bit about Israel and what they had to go through. What does that mean to me? What that means to you and I is that God has not just established these rhythms for Israel, but he has established for us as God's people, his church, what I'm calling gospel rhythms. There are rhythms that God wants to be a part of our lives. And so what we've read serves us extremely well. I would invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Colossians. The Apostle Paul kind of spells this out for us, in particular in verses 16 and 17 of Colossians 2. Listen to what it says. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Now hear this. These are a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So he's talked about the Sabbath, he's talked about festivals in our text, and he's saying these are a shadow. What's a shadow? A shadow is not the real thing, but an image of the real thing. It's an incomplete and diminished image of the real thing. And what Paul is saying is that the Sabbath and the feast are all beautiful, but they're also diminished shadows of what of that which has substance. Ultimately, the substance then is Christ. And the emphasis then should not be on the shadow. The emphasis should be on the substance which is Christ. All of them then are pointing to, are foreshadowing, and are taking us to Christ and his gospel. That's what God was laying in a foundational way with Israel. That not only were these festivals about things that God was doing with them there, but they all found their fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment in Christ. So let's begin by looking at The Sabbath. The Sabbath was a gift from God for the Israelite people that was rooted in the order of creation. Six days of work, one day of rest. And rest is the goal for the Sabbath. And when Jesus comes in Matthew chapter 12, he confronts the Pharisees who are upset with him. Why are they upset with him? Because his disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath and because he had, sealed, he had healed the, the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. And he says, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Which, of course, was a self-identification and exclamation to say, and by the way, I am that guy. And just prior to these words, we already heard it this morning, In Matthew's gospel, we hear these words of Jesus to the people. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you what? Rest. This is all rooted in the Sabbath. 
God wants to give people rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But today, as God's church, we do not celebrate the Sabbath as the Israelites did in the Old Testament because it was only a shadow of what was to come in the person of Jesus. We find rest in Jesus and in nothing or no one else because he is the sacrifice once for all and paid the necessary price for our sin through his shed blood on the cross. Now we gather on the Lord's Day, which is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, the Sabbath patterned after creation. The Lord's Day is patterned after the resurrection. So gathering with God's people on the Lord's Day is one of the rhythms of the gospel. And friends, please hear this. If you are a follower of Christ, celebrating the Lord's Day with your church family is not an option. It's an essential part of your gospel rhythm. It's to be a priority. It's to be a central essential for your growth and your pursuit toward Christ-likeness. It is to be the heart of your gospel rhythm. Now, I'm, I'm not saying this to, to poke at anyone who may be at home watching via live stream. That's not the point here. I realize that right now in COVID, there's all sorts of issues going on here. But some of you can't be here, although you would want to be here. But as a church, God says, I have a rhythm for you. This is your rhythm, and it's to be with God's people gathered together for worship. Unfortunately, in our very American and independent culture, I say independent Christian culture even, gathering for corporate worship on the Lord's Day has become an option rather than an essential. Now, you might hear someone say, as I have done many times, I've heard this many times, I'm a Christian, I read the Bible at home. Or, I listen to Alistair Begg and John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul on the radio, so I get my church with them. Or, I can just stay at home and listen to the sermon via live stream. And I think we're going to have lots more people that are going to say that. Hey, you know, it's on live stream. You know, I've done this for a year. I can just keep doing this for a year. It works for me. And I want to say, yes, if you're a Christian, you should be reading your Bible at home. That's a good thing. But it's not the whole of what God says. The very word church in the Greek, ekklesia, means called out ones. And the idea of being called out ones doesn't mean the called out ones are going to be together because they're called out. There's a gathering that is implied with the word church. And yes, you can listen to great speakers on the radio as well as some not-so-good speakers on the radio. But I guarantee you, if I had Alistair Begg here and John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul here, and I asked them, what do you think about someone who's saying, I'm not going to be part of church, I stay at home, but I listen to these great guys, they would say, look, don't use me as an excuse for you not doing what God has called you to do as one of his children. You need to gather with God's people. That's just a foundational, essential priority for a child of God. It's part of the rhythm that you got. 
And yes, you can listen to sermons via live stream. And I'm so thankful for Alex and Alexi and all those who have worked hard to make it happen. But friends, it's not the same as gathering with people face to face, shoulder to shoulder, unified in song, in prayer, and sitting under the word together. You know, we sang a couple of songs today. They're somewhat older songs. You know, the Micah song, um, There is a Redeemer. These are old songs from, you know, if you're, if you're younger today, you have like, yeah, how? That's like ancient stuff, Pastor. Yeah. But, you know, truth truth resonates. And just to sing some of those, it's like, oh, man, you know what? That There's some great gospel truth. And, and, and to sing that with God's people, gathered, seeing the expression, seeing the, the tearfulness in the eyes, seeing the joy in the expression, being encouraged by the body. Friends, this, this is why God has created the body of Christ. One of the reasons he wants us to be together. And if God wanted our Christianity to be a personal and private matter, he would have instructed us toward that end. But he's commanded us together uh, to be together because he knows what will happen if we don't. We will drift, we'll become discouraged, and we'll be deceived. And friends, unfortunately, COVID has brought some of that out. That's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to, wants, to be, wants to warn us about when he says the following, Hebrews 3, verse 12 and 13. Take care, brothers. Take care. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day. The idea of exhort there is encourage. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We can be so easily deceived. We can so easily be hardened. We can drift away. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, you know it well. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. How do you stir up one another to love and good works unless you're together to be stirred up? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, the habit of some but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the, the, the day drawing near. Friends, have you settled into the gospel rhythm of gathering for worship with your church family? And all of you out here are saying, Pastor Rod, you're preaching to the choir. We're here. I understand that. But I'm, I'm preaching to you on that day when you're saying, hmm, let's see. Maybe, maybe I'll just relax a little bit. I mean, it is supposed to be the day of rest. You see, and we start to, we start to think and, and kind of wrestle with our sinfulness rather than saying, man, there's a reason why I need to be with God's people. I mean, you know what it's like, right? You, 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 know, you get up on a Sunday morning and you're like, oh, man, this is, this is work. And, oh, man, I, I don't know. Maybe I'll just stay home. And then you say, no, you fight through it and you get to church. And as you're coming home from church, you're like, I am so glad I fought through that because I just, I needed to be there with God's people. I needed that word from that sister, from that brother. I needed that encounter where I was reminded that I'm useful to him in the body. I, so we got to fight through those things, friends. Make this a priority. Now, secondly, not only the Sabbath being the Lord's day, but again, if we look back at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16, 
they are shadows of things to come. Even the feasts are a shadow of things to come. The substance then being Christ. All the feasts are fulfilled in Christ. They were foreshadowing Christ in some way. And they all find their fulfillment in what he accomplished for us on the cross. And just like the Sabbaths, we are not bound to keep these feasts. But Jesus does establish one feast for his church to celebrate and to do it often. And it's, of course, the Lord's Supper. And when you think of the Lord's Supper in light of these feasts that included animal sacrifice and grain offering, blood and bread, you begin to see how they're all precursors to what Jesus established that night in the upper room. You remember Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room in order to celebrate the Passover, and Jesus turns the Passover meal into what we now know as the Lord's Supper, and Matthew's Gospel records it this way. Matthew 26, 26 and following. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood in the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so here we have a feast that is to be a part of our gospel rhythm. It's a feast of the Lord's Supper where we celebrate both the body and the blood of Christ. In the bread, we remember what Jesus has done in giving his body. In the the cup, we remember that he shed his blood for us. Together, they symbolize for us the magnificent sacrifice of the Son of God offered on our behalf in order to appease the wrath of the Father. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember what he has done for us. We rest in what he is doing for us, and we hope in what he has promised. Now, friends, the, the emphasis here for us is that you and I have been given by God's gracious hand two gospel rhythms that need to be central in our lives. I'm just bringing this down to a conclusion. We must remember that the purpose of the Lord's Day and the Lord's Supper is not simply to be present. It's not simply to participate. No, we must push on to the substance. And the substance is Christ. In other words, we meet Christ as we gather for corporate worship. The reason you're singing those songs is not to impress the people around you or to hear your own voice or to kind of say, wow, wasn't the band great today? Or even to say, Pastor Rod was really shaking that bush. It's to say, I met with Christ. He's the reason we gather. He's the substance. He's the one that we need. And when we gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we come to meet with Him. 
We don't just come to say, well, I, I took some bread. That was nice. It reminded me of what Jesus did. I took some, there's certainly a reflective remembering. But the point here is to say there's a substance behind that. I'm not saying there's anything mystical happening with the elements. What I am saying is in the obedience of the Lord's Supper, what we are called to do, what we are to do is to actually meet with Christ. That as we prepare our hearts, why would we even prepare our hearts if it were not to meet with him? To say, Lord, I'm being reminded of all that you've done for me. You're so awesome. What I've experienced is so, so incredibly marvelous. And Lord, I worship you because of it. You might have people standing around you. There might be things going on, but you're, you're zoned in because you're there to meet with him. God has put these two rhythms to be part of the fabric of our lives. And friends, I want to challenge you and those that may be watching via live stream. Make these rhythms your rhythms. They already are. Right? The Bible says, be holy because you are holy. You do have rhythm. Why? Because God's given it to you. Now, what are you going to do with that? Don't just go to church. Don't just participate in the Lord's Supper. Meet Jesus in those rhythms. Lord, help us today. These are some things that we need to ponder. We're thankful, Lord, for the wonderful foundational example that we have here in this case law that drives us to see you fresh, but Lord, it drives us also to see the wonderful blessing and gift that you've given us to have these rhythms as part of the fabric and the outworking of our lives. Rhythms, Lord, that you know we need, and without them, Lord, that we will likely drift and allow deception to come and discouragement to be real. Lord, help us to encourage one another. Lord, not to beat up one another. Not to think less of one another, but to encourage one another. To be gathered together to celebrate these rhythms for your glory, we ask in your precious holy name.